When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to Vulnerable with me, Christy Carlson Romano. Today I have the most amazing actor on. It's Max Casella. I grew up watching him on Doogie Howser. I was excited to hear his musical voice come up as Timon in the Lion King soundtrack when I was listening to it with my daughters. But I mean, we're talking about... I mean, he's A-list, if you ask me. (laughs) He's currently in Tulsa King, but I mean, he's been in everything from The Sopranos to Boardwalk Empire. He's worked with the Coen brothers. Uh, You name it, this man has been in it. I'd be here all day listing his credits. I'm so proud to have him on Vulnerable today to talk about how he grew up and how he's doing now. I'm Christy Carlson Romano, and this is The Vulnerable Podcast. Max Casella's here on Vulnerable today. I'm really, really, really honored and, and happy that he would take the time to come in and chat. Max, why are you on my podcast? <laughs> why did you ask me? Because you're f- fucking amazing, man. I, I, oh, I've looked you. up to you, you my whole life as sort of another paisan in the business. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I remember seeing your face almost like... I saw my eyes in you. You know what I'm saying? Like my uh-huh. dark Italian eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Growing yeah. up as a New York City kid, theater kid. Granted, I grew up in Connecticut, but I was in doing all the theater kid stuff. Sure. And I just looked up to you ever since, you know, Newsies and, and Doogie. I'm just so happy to see you. And I'm so happy to see all that you've been doing too. Oh, thank you very much. It's good to see you too. I think... We met once before, no? Okay, tell me where we've met then. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. But do you remember, was it New York or was it California? Might have been LA. Okay, because I was going to say New York. So this must be one of these things where we met. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, what matters is that we're officially really having a conversation today versus one of those like party conversations. Right. So Max, where are you right now? Are you in New York? I'm in my apartment in New York City. Are you in the city? Yeah. In the West Village. Have you been there for a while? Yeah, I've been here for a long time. What's it like raising two girls there? Great. They're spoiled rotten. I, I <laughs> wish I grew up here. Yeah, they're, they're fabulous. Very, very uh, sassy and villagey. Well, you got to be, right? Yeah, you get that, that chip on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to a performing arts school there on 60th and 10th, but it's very different growing up in the West Village. Oh, for Those sure. Those are the cool kids. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and Max, you grew up sort of in, in kind of two places, in D.C. and then in Massachusetts, right? No, I was born in D.C., but I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. We were in D.C. for like six months after I was born that we moved to Boston, to Cambridge. With Vulnerable, I kind of like to start from the beginning of your journey, and sure. I like to sort of tap into you know, elements that either I can personally sort of and and want to expand on with you. A lot of it, a lot of times I talk talk a lot about child acting Mm -hmm. and I'm a big advocate for progress and protection of children actors and sort of like 
Yeah. So sometimes that comes up for me. And I do think that was one of the reasons why I was like, I need Max on the show because yeah, yeah. I do respect you so much and I have seen you on my screen for so long. So were you in the arts then? Well, I mean, I was drawing and that was my thing was right. drawing, drawing all the time since preschool, since I could hold a magic marker, I was just drawing all the time. That was my thing. And that's what I was sort of known for. I wasn't a jock. And in my um, neighborhood growing up, you were either a jock or you were like kind of a loser. And I was really, really tiny and young looking. I looked way younger than, than my age, which, you know, was difficult. There was bullying and, and stuff like that. But I sort of made my mark because I could draw. I was like the artist, you know. So, and then I discovered acting a little later, around when I was about 12. Well, the thing is, my, my mom, and I guess my dad too, they wanted to give me art lessons, and I couldn't stand them. At first, I was at the Boston Museum of Arts, taking a class, which was okay. It was decent fun. Bunch of kids. And then I had one-on-one -on -one teachers, and I just couldn't stand that. I particularly had one that was the last one I ever had, this guy was a refugee from the Soviet Union, and he was very strict. I and bet. he took me around Cambridge, and we'd paint, or we'd, whatever medium we'd choose, charcoal, paint, crayons, markers, what have you. But um, he was very strict about making everything realistic. And mm. I just couldn't stand it. It was just like work, more work. And I just wanted to draw. That was my escape was drawing, and now this was like task, you know, a task. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I showed up, well, he would come to my house. And around when I was about 12 years old, he showed up and I was shit-faced drunk. And oh, At 12? <laughs> yeah. And that was the last time he ever came after that. Interesting. <laughs> and he left. And then I said to my mom, I didn't want to do it anymore. Wow, that's fascinating. And it was around that time I started acting. And then I sort of just stopped drawing for the most part. I still do it once in a while, but it's sort of way in the background. And do you do it shit face drunk is the question. <laughs> no. Try, well, try not to anyways. Try not to get shit face drunk too often. Yeah, exactly. So I'm actually like, I guess I'm six years sober from alcohol. And when I had my first baby, I decided, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this. But had a lot of fun. How was it for you to like get sober like that? Was it really, really difficult? Shitty. Yeah. Yeah, it was shitty. My theory, if you know, if we're talking about it, being a child actor really makes you very transactional. I've mentioned it before on the pod. It kind of makes you have kind of a skewed version of like meeting people, letting them into your life, kind of having, you know, relationships that I, I think are rooted in um, sort of similar interests. So the language is very confusing for you when you're super young like that and everything yeah. becomes monetized. Right. I think over time I got a little confused about who my friends were, maybe. I think that's pretty like, sure. you hear that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think over time drinking became just uh, very, very easy to feel like I was the version of myself that was most successful and sure. you know, most happy. So Right, right, mm -hmm. right. And when you quit, did you have any help? Did you go to like meetings, rehab? Do you have a sponsor? What I mean, how did you do it? So I went to Al-Anon for a long time when I should have been going to AA. I was aware of 12 steps, 12 step language, like 
And I'm telling you, when I tried everything, I tried psychics, I tried Buddhism, I tried Scientology for a brief second, like, you know, went back to Catholicism, like everything that I've tried. And the 12 steps were really, they sort of stuck in my mind as mantras tend to do. But the community, I think until I had to make a lot of changes in my life, right? I got married and then I was about to have a baby. So I I got sober for my kids. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. So for me, with it being my body and everything, I think you just have to end up making that choice. Right. And so I I did have a few years under my belt of understanding what that might mean and what that might look like. But I was a binge drinker. I wasn't so much as uh, somebody who had to do it in the morning and like, you know, something like that. Luckily, luckily. Right, right. But 12, I'm actually kind of curious. I don't know if you don't mind me asking you. At that time, I was hanging out with a friend and we were experimenting with marijuana and booze. And, you know, raiding his dad's bar and making like pot pipes out of like, out of carrots, stealing his sister's weed. (laughs) Apples are actually great too. (laughs) I've heard that as well. Because it's sweeter. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's sweeter when you inhale. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, that's what that was, that period was. It wasn't a thing. I just happened to have been, and maybe I was like subconsciously or trying to get this guy to fuck off. I don't know, you know. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah that's like what it I sounds sabotaged. like. And you did. Yeah. And I did. It you worked. were successful. Yeah, yeah. But hey, let's talk about your parents. I mean, as soon as I open up your Wikipedia, it's like amazing to see just who your parents were. Can we explain yeah. to folks like what that was like? Yeah, my dad was Jewish. My mother was Italian. I was raised by both of them. They got divorced mm-hmm. when I was 13. My dad was a newspaper man. He, well, when he was uh, in his 20s, he wanted to be an actor for a short period. And he studied with Wynne Hanman in New York City. He was in the Marines. He went to Korea. He oh. came out. He went to UCLA on the GI Bill. Wow. He married another woman and then married my mother after that. And became a uh, a newspaper guy. He had a column first in New York at the New York Herald Tribune, and he wrote about the economy, and he was a communist. Interesting. And then he worked at the uh, Boston Globe, which is why the family moved to, to Boston, and I was raised there. He ended up getting fired from the Globe because he was rabidly pro-Palestine, anti-Israel, uh, rabidly oh. um, anti-Zionist, anti-big business, and... Uh, uh, the Globe was fairly conservative, so they ended up firing him. And then there was like a huge demonstration in Boston to get him rehired, which they ended up doing. And then he quit soon after that because I guess he was, they made his life miserable there. Well, did he ever get any kind of death threats? Was he ever like, yeah, oh, yeah, he was on all kinds of lists, like Zionist wow. lists and stuff. And he would give lectures at like John Hancock Hall and would get like smoke bombed and. Uh, they had to like take me and my brother and whisk us away. Oh, he was also, you know, very pro Fidel Castro and pro Cuba. And so there was a lot of anti Castro Cubans who were after him. There was a lot of uh, Jewish groups, Zionist groups that were after him. He was on all these lists of self hating Jews. He was quite a cool guy. He had a great record collection, great taste in jazz, bebop jazz. Unfortunately, we had a really bad relationship. He was not a happy guy. And he also, he also had a drinking problem, and he was quite, uh, could be violent with me and my brother, particularly my brother, and also was very hard at, like, 
communicating criticism. Like it always felt like an insult. Like he never approved of my acting career. The stuff I was doing, like Doogie Howser or The Lion King, he used to say, you know, you're not a real actor. Why don't you go study at Lee Strasberg, you know, like your heroes, Pacino, De Niro, all these guys, you know, instead of this cartoon stuff you're always doing. So we actually hadn't spoken. He died in 2009. I don't even, he was living in France, in Lyon. And I hadn't spoken to him since The Lion King opened in November of 1997. He died in 2019. So I hadn't seen him since then mm -hmm. because of a fight, which wasn't a fight because he probably didn't even realize he had said anything wrong. But it was this thing about, of course. you know, this Lion King was a smash hit. And like, I was in the original company. So I was in all the newspapers and the reviews were fantastic. And I was getting grave reviews. And I was calling him to invite him over for Thanksgivings, actually. And he was, couldn't make it, but I. Uh, he brought up this Lion King. He's like, Jesus, kids, things like a fucking smash. Jesus Christ. Like that kind of thing. And I was like, yeah, dad, you see in the times and all the papers, they're giving me great reviews. He goes, yeah, you know, but you keep suggesting to this and you, you always balk at it. Why don't you go to a real acting class and, and become a real actor and stop doing this cartoon stuff and blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. And you knew that was the time to draw a line? That wasn't the only time. We had periods of like five <laughs> years through here and there, five years here when I stopped talking to him. When I went out and did Doogie Hauser, I wasn't talking to him because I was studying with this very scary guy, studying acting in the village. I was living with my mom up in um, Harlem. Mm -hmm. A very different Harlem probably than it oh, is Harlem now. Oh, Harlem in 1985, 86, 87, that period of time. That's like taxi driver Harlem. Yeah, it was like a pretty crack crack epidemic was in full swing. Yeah. So I, I was, you know, working down at the World Trade Center. I needed money for acting class, and this teacher was very scary. And if I didn't come up with $150 that month, he was going to, you know, kick me out of class. He was going to tell me I wasn't serious and because this is what would happen. And in my 19-year-old head, I was like... This guy is going to make me a great actor, and I can't do it without him. And he was my guru, you know, and I desperately wanted his approval. And it was probably like this father figure thing going on, but he was a pretty toxic prick, actually. He's dead, too. <laughs> Can you say his name? <laughs> Ivan Cronenfeld. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I asked my dad for 150 bucks, at least, you know, loan it to me or whatever, so I could not go into class without a check, you know. Because, you know, I would run from this class in tears half the time. It was like Stella Adler type shit. Yeah. And this is back in the day when students used to be afraid of their teacher. This is the way oh, yeah. it's supposed to fucking be. And now the teachers are all scared of the students. And nobody's learning yeah. the guts, you know? So, no, of course. Of course. So my dad says, I'm not giving you $150. You can work for me and be my errand boy. And I was like, Dad, I got a job. Can't you just give me the money like... I didn't go to college and, you know, parents are supposed to like yeah. educate their children. I said, you owe me an education. This is my version of that. He goes, I don't owe you a fucking thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the first time I said, fuck you to him. But I was like, had one foot out the front door while I, when I said it. Because <laughs> my father was always bigger than me. And he, he used to kick my ass all the time. He also was a Marine, which by the way, I'm married to a former Marine. But he was like, <laughs> he, he's like, if, 
the weirdest Marine you would ever meet in your life. You'd be like, this guy's no me. way this guy was a fucking Marine. He looked like Woody, he looked like Woody Allen. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He looked exactly like but Woody Allen. But I don't Allen. know about it. I'm saying Marines will fuck shit up. No, of course. Obviously. My husband says that the ones that went to Korea are a whole nother like batch. Of he didn't crazy. do any fighting. He, he was on an aircraft carrier. He was working on planes. He didn't do a fucking Got thing. Fight, no fighting. Got it. So I didn't talk to him for five years after that little episode. In the meantime, I booked Doogie yeah. Hauser and I moved to California. He doesn't mm -hmm. know. And he's flipping through the channels. He sees me on TV and he calls my mother. He's like, what's going on? And then he calls me and then we start talking again. Hmm. And then he, he actually asked me to loan him $10,000 or to mm. gift him $10,000. <laughs> Oh no, this, so guy's, politely, this guy's politely told him to go fuck himself. Politely. Again, for the second Again. time. So in 97, when I was doing The Lion King and then we had that riff, mm -hmm. he didn't even know. He thinks he's helping, right? So he has no idea why I stopped yeah. talking to him this time. Right. But then it went on for 20 years without talking to him. Mm -hmm. So from 97 to 2007, he was living in New York. And then 2007, he moved to France. And my mother was walking my baby daughter at the time down 14th Street in the stroller when she happens to bump into him. I'm I was going to say, it's only a matter of time. It's a small island. And he's like, hey, kid, what's going on? What's Who's this? Is this uh, Lorenzo's? My brother's name is Lorenzo. He goes, no, it's Max's. He goes, what? He gets married? He has, wow, he's got a kid. Well, listen, it's really fortuitous that I run into you, kid, because I'm moving to France next month. And uh, I mean, he didn't give my daughter a second glance, you know? Yeah. And then he moved to Lyon and he was there and no one could find him. And no one really looked for him except for me. I was constantly like over between 2007 and maybe 2014 or something. I was like constantly looking for him, Googling him, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, I couldn't find him. And then... One day I did Google French, French Google, and, mm -hmm. I, and I found his phone number, and I called him. And then oh, I reached shit. out to him, and it was weird. He was weird. It was like, he was like a hermit. And like, it was like, ring, ring. It was a hello. I said, Dad. And there was like silence. And I, he, goes, he says, Dad. I go, yeah, it's Max. Another silence. Max. Hey, uh, how are you, kid? Uh, what? Hey, how, how did you get this number? Um, he was like really mm -hmm. like paranoid, like how I found him, mm -hmm. you know, and I explained mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. We chatted, I caught up, I told him, you know, wife, kids. Yeah. He sent me a picture, give me, he got his email, I sent him the picture. He says, good looking family. All now I need is their names and I'm all set. So I said everyone's names and the age of the kids. And then that was it for another few years. And I would reach out wow. to him once in a while. I would, I would email him once in a while. And he really didn't want anything to do with me. And then my mm -hmm. daughters got old enough where they started to get, my eldest was really curious about her grandfather. And she asked if, I had just recently uh, emailed him because his brother had died. So I informed him of that. And his email was open and my daughter was watching me write to him. And she was like, I want to write to Grandpa David. I was like, all right, go ahead. And so she writes to him this lovely thing, you know, it would be nice to have a nice grandpa, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. And I'm, I guess at the time she was 12 or 13. I don't know how long ago this was. She's mm -hmm. 17 now. And he writes back a very sweet 
email to her, long email, and they start to correspond. But sooner or later, he starts to bash me to, to Mia, my daughter, and say, you know, did it ever occur to you why I wasn't at your birth and I haven't been in your life? Well, it's your father shut me out and he's done this, that, and the other thing. And then my kid got really weirded out by that. And she was like, daddy, I don't know what to do with this. So I wrote to him. I said, hey, dad, not for nothing, but you moved to a foreign country that didn't leave a forwarding address. And I found you and we weren't getting along for many years. But, you know, I'm a father now, too. I know how hard it is. I had every urge that my father had, but he acted on them and I didn't. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you just want to choke your kids sometimes, you know? Oh my God. Absolutely. hundred for fucking percent. <laughs> but you don't, you know, if you're <laughs> no, fucking civilized. Because it's illegal. <laughs> yes. And I said, I had no hard feelings. You know, I, I, I'm, I gave him the uh, olive branch and he goes, what do you mean? Uh, no hard feelings. What have I ever done to you? And all this. This like, was through email. Shit. This was through email, email still? Email, yeah. I said, Dad, well, you know, if you want to make me say it, you know, you were violent with me and my brother just to, just to start there. That's a vicious yeah. lie. And at the time, my mother was suffering from dementia, which he knew. Mm. And he said, uh, you must have dementia like your mother. Uh. And then it devolved into like, I have your address and I will fly the fuck out there. On the and next flight the and kick your fucking ass up and down quarantine street that he lived on. He would have deserved it if you ask me. He would have absolutely deserved it. So the end of the story goes, we're not, that was our last words. Just really awful. That's sad. And then me and my wife separate. I move out the house. I'm living alone. Mm -hmm. Soon after that tragic thing happened, she calls me and says, there's a package here. It's from your dad. It's addressed to the girls. And I was in a restaurant. I was eating. And I said, well, all right, we'll open it. Goes, I don't think I should. You should come over and open it. I said, just open it. Just tell me, you know, let me know what it is. Yeah. She said, it's a big box. I said, all right, let me know what it is. She goes, okay. She calls back in like five minutes. You have to come over here right now. Jesus Christ. I opened it. I'm not going to look inside it anymore, what I saw. You need to come here and deal with this. So I'm like, my food had just arrived, so I like boxed it, paid the check, and I walked over to the apartment. I get upstairs. I open the door. The three of them are standing there staring at me and with the box, big, big box in front of them. And my ex-wife's looking at me like, and my kids are like, and I opened the box. And I'm pulling out shoes, socks, a sweater, files of papers. And I'm looking at my ex. I'm like, what the fuck? And it's addressed mm -hmm. to the girls. And then there was an iPad. And then there was his wallet. And then there was his passport. And then there was a note from a French doctor saying that he had been diagnosed with colorectal cancer. This was dated the previous December, and it was now March, and he was dead. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they put him. I don't know what they did with him. Mm -hmm. I don't know what hit the date of his death, but he's that was the box. That was the box? That was the box, and no note, Yeah. no nothing. Addressed to the, to the girls. Did you look at his Google cache? <laughs> the iPad was locked for the longest time. I don't know, somehow my ex, she unlocked it gave it to my oh, daughter. Oh, cool. 
nice. But uh, no, I had all his papers. You know, I had his note from his editor of the Boston Globe from 1970 saying, David, haven't you about had your say on Israel? Can, <laughs> can we give it a rest now? <laughs> he was friendly with uh, Noam Chomsky. So I have this letter written by Noam Chomsky Gosh. to my dad with his signature at the bottom. So there's some cool stuff in there. A nice pair of loafers. Some ratty uh, jacket and a sweater I threw out. And he sent it to the girls. See, that's what I find really interesting, that he sent it to the girls and not, you know, I don't know, yeah. it's your family name or whatever. That's very odd. He's a character, your dad. Was, yeah. Yeah, the spirit of your dad is a character. Yeah. I can relate, Max, honestly, I can relate in a weird way. Very uniquely different people. My father's, it was about six years ago that he passed away. And uh, we found out a lot of more information about him and his, you know, extra whatevers that he had in his life. And we always kind of knew who he was and what he was about. My dad's name was um, Tony Romano. And it's funny because, you know, you're you're on The Sopranos. You know, you're in Tulsa King. You're, you know, yeah. he would be so proud of us right now having a yeah. conversation, except he wouldn't want me to be talking about him. But here's the thing, Dad. What what you do in life will come back in generations to come. And, and, and I think that there's so many of us, right, that are trying to break these generational issues with yeah. our kids. It stops with us, you know? Right, right. And we're not perfect. We're not perfect. We endured a lot. But it's like, what do you want to impart onto your girls now, having experienced all that as the father figure that you knew? Yeah, I mean, I just dote on them, give them anything they want and listen. And, uh, you know, my ex is the, was the strict one. I was more like, you know, fun and games. Hmm. No, I adore, I love being a father. I could see you being strict too. I'm only strict about like, you know, don't be disrespectful. Don't call me bro. Don't, yeah. don't like, uh, be safe, you know, don't, you know, all kinds yeah. of stuff like that. But I'm not that strict about a lot of other stuff, but I love being a father. I love my kids. It's, uh, I don't get to live with them, so it's really hard for me. But And they're teenagers. But you, they know that you love them. Oh, they do. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. It's got to be really hard right now. 17 years old. I got a five and a, and a three-year-old, you know? But I'm seeing all these different things about climate change and all these different school policies. I live in Texas. I have two daughters. You know, uh -huh. I, got, I got lots of stuff in my mind going on at all times. And then you've got, you know, your girls who you didn't have social media growing up. What is that like? Yeah, they're addicted to it. You know, I tried yeah. to like, tried to, you know, curtail it, but it's a fact of life now. And I don't, I don't know. I fear for them, you know? Yeah. When you get old, I think you can remember like all the, the, half the time you're looking at your phone, you know? That's Instead true. Looking around at what nobody's present. Right. But, you know, what are you going to do? No, I know. It's a, it's a balance. And there's a part of me that wants to have like a policy of like no phones on, on uh, like for summers. Uh, that's probably going to be really impossible to do. But I like to think that everything comes full circle, but mm -hmm. I, I, it is a little hard to navigate that. So then in terms of us chatting about the Doogie Hauser and like beyond that, because I feel like there's so much to chat about with like the way that you came into the arts. So now, I know on the Wikipedia as well, it has been said in interviews and whatnot that you had a condition that made you look a lot younger. You know, it wasn't fun when I was a kid, but, yeah. you know, I started, I look my age now, so it's not like I'm reaping the benefit of it, you know, but it, like it's, when I was a kid, it was tough because, you know, you, you look like you were in the wrong class all the time. 
and you were mm-hmm. small and you know you get you get picked on and beat, beaten up on and stuff like that right it's called hypogonadism hypopituitarism my i have a my pituitary gland doesn't work and it's I was just born, me and my brother were born that way. It's, it was genetic. It just oh. doesn't work. The, the pituitary is the master gland, governs your whole body, you know. So I had to take a thyroid pill. The reason why I was playing kids, like on Doogie Hauser, I was playing 15, 16, but I was 21 right. to 25 wow. or something like that. So that was because of this, this thing. And I had to take growth hormone to grow. I still have to take it to maintain health. And mm-hmm. testosterone, I, to, to reach puberty, I had to take testosterone because mm-hmm. it was like 27 years old and I wasn't, it wasn't like happening. Mm-hmm. So just, they pumped me full of, full of hormones. So that was hard because at that point, in the, I was already in the business and was working. It was a known quantity. Your face, the way that it looked was known too, right? Yeah, so I had to totally start <laughs> over and there was a period where I wasn't couldn't get any work at all except like voiceovers and I was in LA and it was depressing as hell being in LA not working oh so depressing dude and then I finally like I guess like oh I got cast in the Lion King in LA and that took me to New York and then I was singing and yeah I was singing and dancing eight times a week on the testosterone and then all of a sudden I became like this you know athlete and I was done with it well, with your character, weren't you on stage as the outfit? The outfit had to be on your body, right? It was a puppet. I yeah, wore it. Because I just saw it. It was at, at outside my body. It was strapped to me, and I yes, had to yes. manipulate it. Yes. It was extremely, extremely hard. Very, very physically, physically challenging. So I was Belle and Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and oh, I did right. it. That's eight, right. That's right. I remember that. And I did it eight shows a week, and it was really effing hard on your body to be doing any of those. In fact, I think it's a Disney thing. They make you just like, (laughs) they work you real hard on the Broadway shows to bring the magic. I mean, I think eight shows a week and doing anything is too much. It's too much. Frankly, especially especially a musical. Especially a musical. Too much. These people have these chronic, you know, injuries that they have. The workers' comp packages are not not that great. I mean, I know guys, dancers who ended their careers, The Lion King. You know, Alvin Ailey, ballet dancers, they're done after that. Absolutely. That is an extremely amazing show. My girls just saw it. It was their first uh, musical they'd ever seen. And of course, I think of you because when we play it, I, I see Max and I'm like, oh my gosh, Max was Max was this. So what was that like then too? I mean, I, it's hard because I want to I wanna go back to Doogie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I find it really interesting because you were 21 and because... Mm-hmm. You know, what I found really great about the character was that you brought this sort of older, like you'd been around the block kind of guy because you really had been around the block. And I feel like the same kind of archetype you played in Newsies as well. It was like the best friend who was streetwise and and knew what was going on and was had a really right. good heart. And I feel like that that was very much who you were in the yeah. wake of everything you'd experienced. Yeah, I mean, in Newsies, I always saw this those kids were like little men, you know? And if you look at the photographs of the period, those actual kids, they were like little men, you know? Yeah. And no childhoods there. They had no childhood. So, they, no. you know, that's, that's, I just try to bring that to it. As far as Got Doogie's it. concerned, I mean, you know, I was just, I was just being a version of myself that mm-hmm. 
at the time, before I went to California to do it, I had no concept of even what it meant to be Italian American. I mean, I grew up in an all black school and like black music and hip hop. Harlem. Yeah. No, I didn't, where I grew up in Cambridge. Oh, I'm home. so sorry. I'm this tracking. Is, I'm sorry. Earlier, back back in the when I was growing yes. up, so I didn't have any. Yes. Con- I wasn't brought up around Italian American culture, right? So okay. all of a sudden, now they're like, "You're uh, like Stephen Bochco was, you know, wrote this guy to be like this <laughs> Italian guy from New York, but they, he lived in Brentwood. I don't know. I grew up in Brentwood. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> it was a non non sequitur. It's like yeah. yeah, there was no. It's but they, they they wanted me to play that up, so I said, "Okay, I mean, I said, I'll do what they want me to do." So I based sure. I based Vinny Del Pino off of my dear friend um, Frank Renzulli, who's a great actor, great writer, great brilliant human being, and I just basically did Frankie. Got it. So that was your source. You had a, a connection to that that way. Yeah. And then when did you start eating Italian food then? I'm, I'm very concerned about this as it, from Romano to Casella. Later, later on. Like my, I'm so my sad for you. <laughs> mom didn't really cook that much. They cooked, but they, my father would make, you know, awful meals and maybe yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. had to fucking eat them. You couldn't leave the, the table. Yeah. And then, uh, my you, mother would cook stuff and it was more your mom like worked too though. Right. Yeah, your mom she worked. worked there was more like, they were more like health, health conscious um Ah, even before it was like a thing it was in cambridge you know there was you would eat health food to go to air one back when there was only one health bar you know what i mean tiger's milk bar was the only health bar you could get and that's how i was raised you know with like health food and they pumped us full of vitamins me and my brother to try to get us to grow i guess and oh yeah um, that makes sense okay that tracks so I didn't really eat any Italian food until, until I was living on my own. What's your favorite pasta dish? Well, I, I cook. You know, I love to cook. My, one of my favorite at this yeah? time of year, anyways, uh, sausage and cannelli beans. It's really good Ooh, with that sage. Sounds really good. Yeah. That sounds really good. It's really good. It's really good. I like a brown butter, but that's not, you know, that's not being canon to the bolognese that I would like to have, you know, or the meat. Or yeah, the, yeah. My dad and his family, the Romano family, and Connecticut is where I'm from. They had the Mama Romano and Six Sons Bakery, and it was very, very popular in the tri-state area. They would do Italian rum cakes. Oh, yeah. And they and they were, you know, I think they sold the recipe to Prego at one point because they had a lot of recipes for Prego. So this is actually interesting. So you didn't, for somebody whose casting is so Italian and and wrapped up in 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 mob culture, I find this very interesting that this was sort of delayed for you. Do you feel connected to that world now? I mean, did the Sopranos no. kind of no, no. baptize you to this world? Not at all. I, I always felt like an imposter on the Sopranos. I had no idea why they kept me around because I'm not from that world, not even from New York or Jersey. Not a tough right. guy. Never like nobody, in the, didn't know anybody in the mafia. And mm-hmm. truth be told, I haven't played that many mafia guys, you know. I mean, I'm playing one now on Tulsa King, but like one that's, mm-hmm like reformed, you know, has left mm-hmm. that behind him. For now. <laughs> For now. I mean, yes, right? right. Well, my character on Tulsa King, Armand, he's was never a tough guy in the first place. He was born into a mm. mafia family, into that world, but he didn't have the killer, you know, instinct to, mm-hmm. to be a mob mm-hmm. guy, but he was very good with numbers. So they put okay. him in charge of the sports book, you know, so that's what he was doing. Got it. 
But then you got to watch the show to see what happens. But I can't wait. You know, I auditioned for it. And I'm so fucking salty that I didn't. Oh, which, which role? <laughs> to be the daughter, to be his daughter. I'm a bit, I think I might be younger. I'm 38. I don't know. I, sure. I yeah. fucking would, die. I would, I would kill to be on that show. That is a, it's going to be a killer show. I'm so excited for you. And I'm so Thank excited you. for the show. And I'm going to watch well, it. Fing- fingers crossed, you know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, November 13th, right? That's coming That's out right. November 13th. Paramount, Paramount Plus. November I 13th. I cannot wait. Yeah. I'm so excited. I hope people like it. You know? Obviously, I mean, we're all big fans of yours. And this is this is all just so interesting to me in terms of just everything that you've gone through. I mean, are there things in your career that are goals for you that you feel like you would want to do now? outside of what you're doing right now? Is it just working? Is working really just what you love? Or yeah, are there certain roles that you want to play? I get that. I do get that. You know, I guess at some point I'd love to do a production of Waiting for Godot. Mm. I always wanted to be, do that play. I would love to do, I never did a mammoth piece. I'd love to do some mammoth. I'd love to do American Buffalo or something like that. That'd be cool. I don't have any specific goals. There are directors that I would like to work with I haven't gotten the chance to work with, or directors that I've worked with that I would like to work with again. Mm-hmm. I just, my goal is to, to work and do quality stuff and to be blessed with you know good material. That's tough you know, to find, huh? It's well, tough to is find. it or is it not? Because I always got Disney stuff. So my the stuff that I was thrown was either Lifetime movie, horror movie, like... Weirdly enough, I started my career in Woody Allen independent films. Well, not that. That's not an independent film. But I started in indie films. Hal Hartley was one of my first films that I ever did. Oh, which film? Henry Fool. Oh, my God. I know Thomas J. Ryan. I love him. I love him so much. Isn't he the best? Yeah, he was doing an off-Broadway show called The... Not The Sensitives, but it was called something about these gay men in advertising... I forget what it was called. But anyway, he was killing it, killing it over in the next theater. And I was doing some some fun bit with Betty Buckley. And I got to see him frequently, and I loved him yeah. so much. He's the best. Such a great guy, great actor. Kevin Corrigan's yeah. a dear friend of mine also. He was in that. Oh, that's right. He was. How's he yeah. doing? What is he doing? He's fantastic. We just did a movie during COVID, during the lockdowns. We did a movie. He played a, He and Thomas played two priests in a lockdown mm-hmm. church. And I played mm-hmm. this sort of wayward, sort of recovering alcoholic, sad sack friend of Kevin's character. Mm-hmm. And it's about lost and it's about, you know, you know, the New York City during the lockdown and about alienation. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It's called um, Scenes from an em- Empty Church. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, so that's how I, I met Thomas and got to work with Thomas. So, yeah, that's awesome. Oh, that's so I don't so have any great. other goals other than just, you know, being good material is hard to find mm-hmm. sometimes, you know. So yeah. I just, I love my job, you know. I'm, I'm never happier than when I'm doing my job. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. I mean, I would want to ask you about the child actor thing, but it's it seems to me that it's not. I mean, I didn't have the the um, the child actor experience. And that's okay. I acted in as a kid in Boston doing theater and some local TV mm-hmm. in Boston, but I didn't have an mm-hmm. agent and I didn't, you know, I didn't miss school. I had a very normal normal, I mean, not normal, but yeah. it was a weird childhood, but not, very <laughs> not a show business childhood even though I was acting professionally on stage mm-hmm. and doing some 
some TV things here and there. But it wasn't until I was 18, I moved, graduated high school, got an agent, studied acting in New York City and started pursuing a career at it. I was already 18 years old, so. Max, then we were just talking about the the artistic sort of, I want to say almost like your childhood was very much what artists need to pull from for their art, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like you need for sure. All the, the yeah, yeah, for sure. All the crazy chaos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a real apprenticeship when I was 19, 20 years old. I worked in an off-off Broadway theater, washing out the toilet bowls, putting the, you know, replacing the, the toilet paper and painting the, the floor and the walls and mopping the floors. I mean, I worked as the, I was the, um, the janitor in the theater and I was also in the plays because I was mm -hmm. sort of an apprentice to the, this old actor, Sidney Armas at the time, mm -hmm. about 60, 70 years old and was just, in my eyes, a great actor, and I wanted to be around him, so I worked for him, and I like ran the light boards, I painted sets, I acted, I did everything. It's very different, this generation. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know about these, what's the matter with these I kids know. today? What's the matter with these I kids know. today? But even in the, in, when I said, um, I didn't go to NYU, but, but uh, when I was like 18, 19, I did a lot of NYU student films. Yeah, that's the best way. I also drew storyboards. I, I, I was the boom operator, the clapboard You're guy. You're like, I'll do anything. I carried, I carried <laughs> yeah. equipment. You know, I, I, I just wanted yeah. to be around it. And, yeah. and I wanted to be great or at least very good. Like that was, mm -hmm. I, I had no dreams of Hollywood. I wanted to be a great actor. That's, that was my dream. I wanted to be a stage actor. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't, didn't turn out that way, but it, after a very long period of time, you know, I'm finally happy, sort of, with my basic ability. Okay. You know, but my goal when I was a young man, a young kid, was not to be famous or even rich, but to be like a great actor. Yeah, of course. So. And you don't need those Strasbourg. <laughs> That's right, man. You don't need no. the Strasburg, so go to hell. Your dad was your number one hater, man. But yeah. I've got I might be your number one fan. Thank you. Appreciate it. Max, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. And you know, we were a little vulnerable today, so I hope that was okay with you. That's and where I live, babe. That's where I live. Good. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And yeah. um, I hope that your daughters are healthy and well. Wonderful. And I hope that you get a million seasons on Tulsa King. Everybody, please go check him out. Otherwise, I see him on Instagram. Is there anywhere else that people can can bug you and give you compliments? I'm just on Instagram. Max.Casella is my handle. C-A-S-E-L-L-A. -L -L -A. And I respond to whoever, you know, sends me messages. I was... Yeah, like me. Yeah. <laughs> Max, if you ever want to do a side hustle, I'm pretty sure you'd clean up on Cameo. I'm just saying. Don't think it hasn't been suggested to me. <laughs> I've heard all about it. All the guys are on Sopranos are on that. I yeah, think. I couldn't do that. You do you, Max, all and right. don't do anything different. All right. all right, bye, Max. We love you. Ciao, we'll love be you watching too. you. All Stay right. in touch. Okay. Thank you. Vulnerable is hosted by me, Christy Carlson Romano. Produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham and executive produced by Brendan Rooney. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham and our video editor is Eduardo Gamba. Follow Vulnerable wherever you listen to podcasts so you can join me every week for a vulnerable conversation. And be sure to follow Vulnerable on Instagram and TikTok at The Vulnerable Podcast. And make sure to tune in to my YouTube to watch the video version. 